Hi, and welcome to the Global Game Changers podcast. I'm James Digby, and I'll be your host for the show where each week we join a special guest and co-host and find out about their journey into tech and hear the stories that led them to where they are now. We'll sit down with startup founders, VCs, leading figures from corporate tech giants and the governmental sector to find out what makes them tick and the quirky memories that they've had along the way so far. In this week's show, we got to sit down with Louise Bockenhauser from the Huffington Post and she shares with us her story of leaving Denmark like a true Viking and becoming a renowned international war correspondent through to her role of executive editor at the HuffPost. This episode was recorded live in association with Tech Barbecue 2019 and with my guest co-host Alex Fellman, where Louise shares with us the harsh realities of journalism. <laughs> Enjoy the conversation. Hi everybody, uh, this is Startup 42 Media and we're live from Tech Barbecue. I'm super, super excited right now. We're sitting down with Louise Rogue from Huffington Post. Um, I just want to jump right into it with her. It's great to have her on. Louise, can, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and get some people some context about, about you and kind of go as far back as you want? Okay. Well, if I go really far back, I'm actually born here in Copenhagen, uh, but I live in New York. I've lived in New York now for 20 odd years. I'm sorry, uh, you didn't come too far, but you've probably come the furthest of all the journalists <laughs> so far. <laughs> it's true. I, um, but, you know, obviously happy to be back in my home home city and this is a great uh, conference a great lots of fun things happening uh, um, Louise can I ask you a quick question yeah. uh, so I pretty much well not exactly uh, in a longer winding journey uh, did the opposite mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a New Yorker based here in, in Copenhagen what was the driver for you going across the the ocean and, and across the pond yeah so pond, I actually I like I actually um, went I started out in London did my undergraduate degree there uh, then went to to New York to do my graduate degree uh, and were you at Columbia, Columbia. and okay. um, and then I got a job uh, after. Well, I went on a road trip out to California. Got a job at the LA Times. Through the way. Did yeah. You, well, so did you go from New York to? So no. where was actually this road trip? Sorry. It was, to it was great. <laughs> it was like um, no, I love road trips. I, I do them often if I can. Um, uh, it was from uh, Colorado out to to um, LA. Nice. And at the yeah. end of the road trip in LA, I actually got a job. Uh, I still had my boyfriend back in in New York and like all my stuff, and I was like, okay, see you later. <laughs> That was a phone call to have, right? Yeah. yeah. Hey, <laughs> just got here. <laughs> so. Yeah, he, was not, he was certainly not happy. Um, and like I had nothing. And I just started. Uh, I remember I had like the interview on a Thursday. No, I arrived on a Thursday, had the interview on a Friday, and I started on the Monday. Did, did you, I just curiosity, did you have that like lined up as you were going through the road trip or? I knew that was like on a, the way. a conversation, yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was like, it just was like, it just happened. And I think like that's for me the thing that was like a real um I think it's changed now in Denmark, but certainly back then, like things were much more like structured and like there's not as much opportunity, well, yeah. sort of on the off the cuff. And I always felt like you know that old cliche about America being the land of opportunity. I just, in my experience, that's been totally true. You took the opportunity, you just ran with ran it. Ran with it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all the 100%. way. I have a question because I feel like I had I don't want to say an exactly similar experience, but my first job out of out of university, um, I went taught English internationally. Mm-hmm. And quite literally what happened to me, and I think it completely screwed up my job prospects for the rest of my life, was I went on a job board, mm-hmm. applied for a job, and the next day someone responded and said, we want to offer you something. And I just went, this is how getting jobs works. Right. And it seems like you had almost a similar experience of like, do I talk, to, did that kind of have a similar effect on you? And It's funny because like, <laughs> I think like it's, I, when I talk to, 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 to especially kids at university and stuff, like they get really nervous about it and I get it because like their first job is like the hard one 
And then from then on, it like all kind of, you know, it works out, right? Yeah. Like you, but it's like the, the first one is the hardest one. And that even that is not that hard. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so like, so I was in LA and I was in LA for, um, I, w- I was with the LA Times for uh, about 10 years, um, but I was in the Middle East for them. So uh, I always wanted to be a war correspondent. So in 2003, when... Can I ask, a, what about being a war correspondent was, was super interesting for you? So was it the best in the helmet? No, it was... Okay. <laughs> it's a good I, look. The style. It's not a good look. The style was the reason you were a war No, and I had my own one, actually. I had my own one made. Uh, really? Like, specifically made for... Yeah. Because like, when I got there, all the, all, the, all the vests were like way too big because they were all for guys. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, like there's, there's like space enough here for like a tank to dry, dry through. Like I need something <laughs> that's like... And so I had it like custom made, um, you know, with my blood type and everything. Um, <laughs> you had it custom made with your blood type. Well, it had like a it, it, so all the all the all the um, vests had like a blood type on it, so that if there was like a mass casualty, like you know, they would know straight away what what kind of. Yeah. Okay. Do you still have this vest? I do. Yeah. yeah I do, do. Do you bring it out to parties? Uh, I do not. It's too heavy. It's very. <laughs> yeah. um, it doesn't go with any accessories. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, but yeah, like so. Th- to your question, like I had um, worked in a refugee camp when I was about like in between, like after university. I mean, after uh, high school, and before university, I'd worked in a refugee camp in uh, in the Balkans. Okay. At that time, that was the war in Bosnia. I'm yeah, revealing yeah. how old I really am, but um, yeah, so many years ago. So that was always like a driver for me in becoming a journalist. I really wanted uh, to cover conflict. I think conflict is interesting because, like, in those moments, you really see the best and the worst of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I lived. I ended up living in Iraq for like. Um, almost three years. Fabulous. How was that experience? Was it like so different to how you imagine it? Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was absolutely formative. Um, You know, I I think um, like people always ask, oh, were you afraid? And it's really hard to explain like when you're afraid all the time, Mm -hmm. you've, you internalize the fear in such a way that like, you know, like when people touch you, you just like jump, right? Because like, you're just like Mm -hmm. so afraid all the time. It was super intense. Um, also, I made some of the best friends that I have today. Like some of my colleagues, my my fellow journalists there, were just amazing. Um, and then, of course, covering a story that just like meant really literally the world to the people involved. Wow. I think that was that was really something. Um, yeah, and just like ne- negotiating those things, negotiating the friendships, negotiating like the professional kind of challenge, and then also like the danger day to day. And it's interesting because like there was like a lot of misconception about that conflict. Um, you know, people always thought, oh, you live in the green zone. We didn't live in the green zone. We lived in the city. And I think as a woman, I actually had like a lot of mm-hmm. um, advantages because I could dress up. So I would dress up and wear the abaya and the hijab and could go on the street, right? Like I had an American colleague and he was like, he had like red hair and freckles. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard Literally for him. Literally standing out. Yeah, yeah, standing <laughs> out. Um, there are some red-headed, red-haired Iraqis, but they're not, not so many they're ginger not Iraqis now. <laughs> <laughs> So that was like easier for me as a woman, um, I think, uh, in some ways, yeah. So like a really formative experience. And then I came back to um, to cover the 08 election, which was like, you know, in the first instance was Hillary and Obama up against each other, and that was super interesting. And that actually felt like being in a bubble and being in a... Because you had to be on the bus, right? Like you mm. had to be one of the boys on oh the really? bus. Oh, really? You had to go on that tour. So yeah. say, I, that, is that like a conflict in itself as well, in that same sense? Or yeah, in a way. In the same sense. In the same sense. You had to wear something with your blood type in case you got <laughs> shot. <laughs> no, but I think it's like it was interesting to me because like I came back and I was like super PTSD because I was like, okay, I like dealt with like life and death and like all these people who's like... 
destinies were like hanging in the balance. And at that time, like the Americans, there were still like 150,000 American soldiers in Iraq, mm-hmm. and none of the Ameri- uh, none of the presidential candidates wanted to talk about Iraq because like some of them mm-hmm. had voted for the mm-hmm. invasion, and like they were just like, no, nah, let's not talk about that one. And so I was like really frustrated, um, and I ended up actually like quitting and writing a book. Uh, if I can plug it. Uh, it came out. Uh, <laughs> well, it's like so old now. I think it's like actually out of print now. But um, <laughs> digital age, digital age, digital age. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you can find it somewhere on the internet. Um, but it was um, a book. A Danish editor from Kulendal, um approached me and said, "Like this sounds like a super interesting story, and you grew up in Denmark, and could you write a book about that?" So I did, and it was called uh, "What Doesn't Kill You," but I explored And right. it came out. Quick, quick question uh-huh. for the. American who doesn't speak any Danish whatsoever. Mm. What what does the second half mean? Uh, b- b- uh, what doesn't kill you? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought that was like but a then tag. I understood <laughs> the Danish translation. So I thought that okay. was a tag that was in Danish. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. It's um, but so and the idea was like, what doesn't kill you makes a good story, maybe. Because um, like there was like, <laughs> I like I like that play on things where it's normally what doesn't kill you make you stronger. And you're like, ah, oh, no, what doesn't kill you you get a good story out of. Like, exactly. It's <laughs> very much like the journalist sort of credo. And that was like a, an amazing experience. Um, came out here, got, was very well received. Um, I'm happy to say. And then, but sold like I don't know five copies. Uh, <laughs> thank you to all my family. For <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know each of them individually. Exactly. Yeah. I'm still giving them out for Christmas presents. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, but then, so the book came out, and then I had to go, go back to work, as it were. And I had met Tina Brown, who's a, she's sort of a famous editor in New York. Um, was the editor of The New Yorker and Vanity Fair and like Talk Magazine and blah blah. Very famous um, editor, and I'd met her on Hillary Clinton's plane actually, and she had said, you know, I'm starting this new media called The Daily Beast. Uh, you must come and work with me. And I was like, okay, sure. So when I was done with my book, I, you know, went to Tina and I said, you know, what about this thing? <laughs> so and after being on the plane. For the campaign trial, mm. you met her there. You wrote a book, and then you took her for a job. Off yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, though she was like in the, she was still in that time because she was on the plane there. So she was still like raising money and trying to figure out how it was going to work. So it actually, the timings were kind of great. And so she had just started the the Daily Beast, um, and I became the founding foreign editor. Um, and it was really fun because I'd always worked in like paper, mm-hmm. like in in a yep. traditional newspaper, and this was like a purely digital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one effort. of the first, actually, one of the first, re- but in in the same thread of making it a media organization from from the get-go the wasn't just like some random blog in the right. corner right, right, it, right. Was, it was set out to be an organization and how was that and say so going into that you so you worked for traditional mm-hmm. publishing companies throughout doing very serious pieces and, and looking to see how was there uh, like it did you have to kind of get more serious in your Writing or was it more like how to do? So it was like I actually I was uh, an editor, so I had to have other people write for me, yeah. and it was really fun because um, we it felt like we could do whatever. Like I'm sure you guys know this too. Like when you do a startup, it's it's like you know you set you know the parameters for what you can do, yeah. and like that like it's really invigorating and really fun in a way, and liberating. So um, and Tina at the, sa- at the by the same token is like an enormously talented hard-charging journalist and had a very specific vision. And I think those things are also really important. It's like when you're creating something, you have to have a vision for mm-hmm. it. Because like if you kind of have maybe a bit of a, like you'd like to do, like that doesn't work. You need mm-hmm. to have a strong vision. And she really had that. And um, and then um, weirdly, we ended up merging with Newsweek. Uh, 
<laughs> so I became the foreign editor of Newsweek. Uh, because of that. Because of that. Well, <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and then the day after we got Newsweek, uh, the Arab Spring happened. Oh, so wow. like then I was suddenly busy again, and then like Osama bin Laden got killed, and like there was so many foreign, so much foreign news that year. Um, it was crazy. But then and and I was like in this, this position where okay, I'm digital. Like this is so great. We don't have to worry mm -hmm. about paper anymore. We don't have to worry about print. And then like comes Newsweek, which is of course a print product. It was like as somebody said, it was like the merger of like a Ford Model T and a spaceship, right? Like it was like, <laughs> it was, like these two things that just like did not fit. And on one hand, you had like all these like super young journalists, like super keen on like doing digital, you know, quick moving things. And then on the other hand, you had this older, very traditional uh, media that published once a week, you know, on this set schedule and like. And, you know, it was enormously cumbersome and expensive and, and complicated. So, it was, it was, you know, it, in some ways it was like running a sprint and a marathon at the same time because I had to think about, okay, the daily, like the minute to minute kind of digital thing, but also at all times wonder, okay, what's my story for like the long uh, story? How would you balance that type of thing of, of w w what needs to come out now compared to what needs to come out? It's like, a at good the question. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think... Um, the news helped a lot in the sense that there was so much news and there was a need for like, I think there was big overarching long form pieces that like Newsweek could do. Mm. So for example, around the, the Arab Spring, you know, you could do like an amazing long kind of explanation about Mubarak and his family and this and that. Where like on on the on the digital side, you'd do some like just some, you know, here's like what just happened at the Ontario Square. Yeah. So so it was like kind of balancing those things out. And it's interesting because like now I'm with Huff Post so I shed a print again. Um, <laughs> it feels like a great liberation. I mean, I, I think <laughs> I love print also still. Um, and I think um, I think the thing that print does actually um, that I sometimes miss in digital is like it enforces like a sense of scarcity. Mm -hmm. Like if you only like both mm -hmm. in terms of like it's like the you know the never ending news feed that you get get on Facebook, right? Like you never it never ends. You're never done with the news, and it can be so exhausting. And if you have a paper, you can take like 20 minutes and you can read it and you yeah. could be done with the news for the but day. But you're done. But you're done. And there's a sense of completion, right? right? And I think like, and also internally, like, you know, there's a front page and that gives like a sense of competition because like there's only so many stories that could go on front. Mm. Whereas like with digital, it's like everything is published. It's just like the infinity what of it all can be challenging sometimes. What do you sort of think from, from coming off of that? Like how does almost, at least the way that I almost see, see this is with having... Um, let's say hard copy news, physical product, the news group becomes like a filter mm -hmm. to see like, you know, what, what does make the front page compared to the digital? There's essentially no filter. And yeah. like everything's potentially news. And, yeah. and I don't know the pros and cons of sort of each and, and, and how that dynamic kind of plays out. I mean, I think like one of the things that'd be really interesting and I'm plugging another thing here, which is like at 4.05 <laughs> on the influence stage, I think it's called, it's the big stage anyway. Um, I'm going to be talking to... Um, some guys from Facebook and Microsoft and a politician about, you know, what's happening right now and yeah. like, um, you know, what's happening to the news ecosystem and democracy and privacy and all those like kind of burning issues right now. And I'm really curious to hear what they have to say. I, I feel like the conversation has changed a lot. And in some ways it's been interesting because it's actually um, like Denmark in the form of Magreta Vestia, but also sort of Europe in general, like we've kind of led on some of these. Well, left everyone else behind. The US is, is completely shocked and doesn't know really what has hit it. Yeah. Um, 
Well, although I think like it feels like now the the the, the conversation in Washington is actually about regulation, and you know the has it changed? It really has changed, and I think you know you're seeing now we're getting a kind of a privacy or not kind of you're getting a a privacy legislation coming out of California. Um, you know, like I, I think there's a burgeoning sense, um, and you know the president of Microsoft the other day was just talking about you know, privacy, the need to democratize data and, and privacy as a right. So I think like more and more you're seeing that kind of language coming out of the big tech companies. Um, you know, Zuckerberg himself said like, when people say we have too much power, maybe I agree, right? Like he kind of, uh, you know, mm -hmm. he kind of conceded the point. And I think like a lot of the tech companies actually don't want to, like they've, you know, he famously said back in the day, move fast and break things. Oops, then we had Trump. Oops, then we had Brexit. Yeah, things got broken. And I think he and other tech leaders, they see that and they realize they unleash something that they can't quite control. And I think they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we put it back in the box again? Like, how do we control this thing that we created? Yeah. Do we need to have more of a conversation with regulators and so on? So like, it feels like an enormously exciting and interesting moment because we could go in so many different um, directions. Um, but like the, the conversation in the U.S. is definitely becoming more European, if you will. Mm -hmm. So that's super interesting. Do, do you think part of the reason this is becoming bigger, and I, I would just really remember um, the Zuckerberg Senate hearing mm -hmm. and just how very obviously clear it was that just the government had no idea yeah. what mm -hmm. these platforms, like just yeah. like it was yeah. mind-blowing yeah. how obvious it was that they were clueless yeah. about how any of these things work. Do you think it's just as they're getting more, let's just call it educated, yeah. for lack of a better word, as they're getting more educated, they're starting to realize some of the um, nitty-gritty or, yeah. or some of the, the nuances of, of what needs to happen in this, this space. I mean, it's funny you should say that because I think th that was, like, striking when you when you were watching those those hearings. And, mm. like, you saw the center. They had no idea. It was, like... mind-blowing. And, like, you had this, like, 70-year-old, 75-year-old, like, trying to, like, figure out the Google <laughs> and stuff like that. And, um, <laughs> and you kind of... Painful. It was painful. And also because, like, oh, if these are the guys who are going to make sure that we get the rec the right framework like ugh. and and I think I think there I think there has been an educational process I think I was talking to a politician a European politician earlier this year I'm going to sound like such a wanker right now but like I was at Davos and uh, I was talking to this uh, yeah, yeah, she dropped the D word <laughs> but um and I was talking to this European politician and it was all about everybody was talking about you know exactly that data privacy and all that and um I was talking to this European politician she said that like there had been like definitely outreach from America to try and understand like mm. you know what the you know how Europeans were thinking about it and like of course with GDPR has been a big thing. Well. Um, I do think what I worry about and I you know you see this amazing tech conference we're at. There's all these exciting things going on. Some things also not so exciting. Something you know AI is like obviously what everybody's talking about and 5G. And and there's a level of literacy, if you will, tech literacy, that I think we're in, in danger of like getting a, an elite that understands all this. Like for this mm. this crowd here, like we all get it. Would you class this as the elite? I think there is like a a, a knowledge elite, if you will. Yeah, for yeah, sure. In and, sense. and now that we're in the knowledge economy, they they basically let's call it the knowledge elite in a knowledge economy becomes the economic well, elite. Right. Basically. Exactly. Exactly. Like, and, and and already you're seeing that. And I think. You know, tech obviously, uh, you know, impacts all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think there's like a real danger that like, you know, a small handful of people will understand like AI, for example, or 5G. And then, you know, like the vast majority of people, like my parents included, will not like have a clue, but they will still Im be impacted by what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a real danger. And I think 
as a journalist at least that's you know something you really have to to kind of um, be mindful of and try and like write in a way that that people sort of get it. I think the other thing that for me that I find very interesting on that point is not only will these people not get it, but I think also because let's say they're not part of the knowledge elite or whatever you want to call it, they're also not being included in the conversation. Yeah. And and I think that's where some of the tech becomes very scary for me is that sort of let's say the knowledge elite has this sort of bubble yeah. that they're in and they're only engaging with each other, but yeah. they don't realize that, oh wait, the knowledge elite is what? At most 5% of the world yeah. or yeah. whatever numbers you want to throw out. It, it's, it's a minority. It's not, it's not the majority right. of people. And yet if they are making these products that everyone has to deal with, like they should bring these other stakeholders into the picture because because they're going to be the using it and, and so yeah. on and so forth. And, and I just think they're not. Can you? Should you bring in? But if they're going to, but I think like a bit is to have that. I think it's a question of democracy, and like mm -hmm. to bring it sort of full circle. Yeah. I, I think, you know, so right now, like in America, in the last thirty years, the 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 wages adjusted for inflation hasn't risen risen yeah. at mm -hmm. all. Like there has been like basically um, wage stagnation. Right at the same time, you've had. Uh, housing costs going up on but average. But also pro productivity's gone through the roof as well. It's got, it's like four x or something like that without. So, yeah, and like so, people are like running faster, but also having to run faster because like so, housing has gone up on a like on average across the U.S. something like two hundred percent, right? Like wow. so, you're making the same money, but your housing costs have gone up two hundred percent, and that's an average. If you live in New York, it's like yeah. many many by oh. factors ten, right? So, you know, I think a lot of the dissatisfaction that we're seeing, really globally like in the US, in the UK, in the form of Brexit, Trump, Bolsonaro, all these things, it's like a sense like, okay, the game is rigged, right? Like something is going on, somebody is getting rich, and it's not me because like, like I am worse off than my mm -hmm. parents were. I have to run much faster. Like if you're like, a, if you're a d in the um, service economy, you have to pee in a bottle, right? Like, cause you're like, you're driving around, like mm -hmm. having to deliver mm -hmm. Amazon goods or whatever, yep. and there's no inbuilt brakes and you're like, you know, like parts of America, you see people on the road because people are not like are peeing in bottles in their cars. This is that is not the way we should live, right? <laughs> and and I think um, tech, as <laughs> as a big driver of the economy and as a, where a lot of this value and and wealth is created, needs to engage with the people, because like we are we are, we have become not just. I mean, the whole thing about data is like, you know, we have also become the product, right? Like we're not just like, you know, the workers, but we're also the the product being sold. Well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it behooves the tech companies to 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 talk mm -hmm. and like include everybody Definitely. as a stakeholder. I find it really interesting with with what you're saying, and I, I think we're probably we're needing to wrap up. I think mm -hmm. fairly soon. I'm looking at it soonish. Um, I find it really interesting in, in the fact that essentially what's happening right now is we have let's say citizens of society as both the product and the consumer. Yep. And so they're they're, they're essentially being. I was talking actually to a cybersecurity person. They're being mined to be the product yep. and then having it sold back to them, yep. which is such a this crazy, to me, I think that's such a crazy loop. And just wait for AI, yeah. right? Like and when we get the robot overlords, <laughs> it's going to be really <laughs> fun. Um, anyway, maybe so you, on the. You've, you, you've given up and you're going to bow to the, the robot overlords <laughs> from day one, is that? Never, <laughs> never, <laughs> never. This has been a fascinating conversation. I mean, like, I really enjoyed it. And I really didn't even get into like, the whole point of going from print to digital. And that you were there during that time. You were there during this mm -hmm. transitional period of where things were going crazy because yep. people just didn't know. Yep. So we, we missed all of the, even that <laughs> part today. But, I mean, we, we must dash for the next one. But We'll do a part two. Part two, exactly. we'd love Wait, to have you on board. Actually, quick, quick question on that. It's, it's, I, I don't have necessarily this live. Um, I'm from New York and going mm -hmm. home eight to six, eight to 11, 16 of October. Mm -hmm. are, you, are you around? 
Uh, yeah, I should be. I'll send you an email yeah, yeah. and we'll try to get you in. And that, that'd be great. We won't take the van, though. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it won't be in a van. I... <laughs> it's, uh... okay, you take it on the road. Yeah, all the way across the pond. Right? <laughs> <laughs> all the way the so, Louise, thank you again for coming on board. Yeah. And right, yeah. Thanks again to Louise and Alex for joining us this week. It was great to hear Louise's story and, and the inspiration it can give us all to follow our passions. If you've come this far, thanks for listening all the way through. If you've got a moment, please tap subscribe on your podcast service and give us a rating so you can let others know about the show as well. Also, if there's anyone that you think will be a great guest, please let us know. Drop us a mail at hello at startup42.co or a DM by social media. Until next time, I'm James Digby and you've been listening to the Global Game Changer podcast by Startup42 Media. Thank you.